Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. That's what we have been told uh, so much of our lives. And I love the idea. It's so incredibly optimistic. Uh, and I certainly would think that we would, would try to do that, right? I mean, life gives you something sour. You try to make it something sweet. But what if life gives you lemons that look more like this? And, and how many of those kinds of lemons are you going to need to get even a little bit of lemonade out of? Or perhaps you've decided to deal with your lemons in all sorts of self-destructive kinds of ways. And so, you know, some people turn to, uh, to drinking too much or eating too much or to violence or to apathy. You see, it isn't always in our first set of actions that we do the thing that we know we ought to do. I actually love this one here, which is, when life gives you lemons, unless it also gave you water, sugar, and a pitcher, there isn't going to be any lemonade. You see, it isn't just about lemons. You need to have a whole lot of other stuff that you have access to if you really want to make lemonade. It's so much easier said than done. And every one of us is going to experience this dizzying array of crises. And so what are we going to do with them? Who will we become because of these crises? How will we treat other people because of these crises. And I'm not saying despite them. I'm not saying, you know, how, how are you, you going to act and who are you going to become despite all of the challenges? I'm asking, who are we becoming and how are we going to treat other people because of the crises that we face? How is it that we can take whatever life throws at us and turn it into something beautiful. That's what the whole of this new series is going to be about for the upcoming weeks and months. What's playing out all over the country right now, it's a result of sin issues in the hearts of men and women. We have racism, we have violent protests. Before that, we were having arguments over masks, which at its heart is a claim to freedom and autonomy, which is, of course, from one vantage point, very much about me and mine and the self. 
There's mockery and there's bullying on social media. There's lies and there's political theater from our politicians. See, in times of crisis, things can get, or, or should I say people, can get more and more bitter, more and more sour and despairing. Each one of us faces challenges. What will they do to our souls? Well, let's turn in a Bible to James chapter 1. And this sort of lays the foundation principle for the whole of this series. See, the people of God have long learned that trials, our tribulations, our crises, they are an expected part of both our physical and spiritual lives. So let's read James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, James is known as a very practical sort of preacher. He's a realist. He hits hard. He pulls no punches when he is telling us how we ought to live as Christ followers in this world. But he was also the brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus. But it's interesting in this, he doesn't use that to, to raise his status in the, in the eyes of his reader. Look, look what he says. He says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, hey, listen to me, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. Actually, Andy Stanley, he has, he's fond of saying that, uh, what would your brother have to do to convince you that they were God, because that's what happened to James. He became convinced that his brother, his older brother, was actually his God and Savior. And, and when he does this, he, he lets us know it's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he, he starts with an acknowledgement of the power and the glory of Jesus. And then he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And this is worth a little bit of, of comment. You see, when the nation of Israel, they were established in their, uh, on their land, eventually, for a whole variety of reasons, hard-heartedness, a lack of care uh, for the poor, rebellion against their God, a violation of the Sabbath, and, and a whole lot, host of other things, uh, God brought, they were invaded by these numerous foreign powers and God brought them into the land and they were scattered among the nations. And so they came to be known as the 12 tribes among the nations or the diaspora. They were dispersed. And at first blush, you might look at this and say, oh, that must mean that James is writing to the Jewish people who are not in Jerusalem, but who are in the surrounding uh, countries. However, when you start to study the New Testament, you see that James and Peter and Paul, they actually took the references for Israel and began to apply them directly to the new people of God, the Jewish people who recognized Messiah as well as the Gentiles who were now joining their ranks in this new people of God. They said that, that they were now grafted into the vine, that, that all of these new followers of Christ, the Christians, were now Abraham's children. 
And so when, he, when the writers speak of the 12 tribes, they're very often now referencing, when they speak of the new Israel, they're referencing the early church, which of course by extension means they're talking to us. But the way that James refers to, the, to us through the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, he's reminding us of the history of the Jewish people and drawing connections to what we experience now in this world. So the, 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 the nation of Israel had faced a crisis after crisis. They had, uh, they had just, kind of con con they just continued to sweep over them time and time and time again until they lived as strangers scattered among the nations. They were slaves in Egypt. They fought to enter the promised land. They suffered from serpents and famine and pestilence and war. They faced constant pressure from the nations around them to compromise their faith, to turn against God. And so the idea became very much rooted in the Jewish people that God would use these, these crises to purify his people. It's an exceptionally Jewish idea about the world. You can consider Psalm 66. It starts off with this great praise. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. This is so encouraging to think that he's preserved their lives and he's kept them, their feet from slipping. They would have, they would have found great, great hope in that. But look, look how the verse continues. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and you laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. And we went through the fire and the water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. You see, they had to go through these great struggles and God would use them to bring them into abundance. This is a very Christian principle, therefore. See, there is a reality of suffering, of crises, one after another. We aren't meant to escape these trials, but rather to press through these trials for the powerful transformation of our souls. Next, we see that the crises that we face, they come from all directions and they're often very unpredictable. Look at verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. This, is, this seems bewildering, uh, a kind of idea. It's a bit of a shocker and even somewhat nonsensical to us, it seems, in many ways. We're going to come back to it, though, in just a little bit. Let's consider first these trials of many kinds because the trials of many kinds, what it, what it talks about when it says the trials of many kinds. Can we pop that one up? The trials of many kinds. This, this word here for many kinds, it's a, it's a very uh, robust word, very colorful kind of a word. It talks about a diversity or a complexity or an intricateness to the trials that you will fight, face. And so you can, you can take this to mean that it doesn't matter what kind of trial that you face, no matter what form these trials take, no matter how they 
manifest, no matter how difficult, no matter how complex, no matter how unbelievably impossible they seem. This verse applies to those many kinds of trials. The trials itself. It talks about that this word is used to discuss our internal flaws, trials we face because of our own sin, external forces, trials that other people or our ultimate enemy, Satan, presses upon us. They're also, it's also used of trials that are sent by God. And the reality of them is that all of the trials are allowed by God to press upon us. See, we don't get to pick which trials we're supposed to grow from, which crisis we're supposed to say, all right, this one I will allow to transform my soul. It is all kinds that you might face. This same idea of facing many trials, it's actually a a word that shows up in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's going along, minding his own business, keeping, you know, to his plan for life, and then uh, some violent people jump out and, and beat him, leaving him for dead. He faced a trial. Same word, same idea. So these trials, are, they're, they're unwelcome, and they are unexpected. And all of it together means that there are, there's these, this sort of multi-pronged attack that our enemy uses to try to destroy us. But these trials instead are used by God to make us mature. Look what he says, because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing, now this, that is the, the overwhelming picture that you will get from the scriptures, that God will use these to test us. And it is a severe mercy, but it's a mercy nevertheless. Because after the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. And this is, this is a really beautiful kind of a word. You could think of it as like stickability, right? It's, it's, it's a word used for people who are carrying a heavy load for a long time. And it speaks of their staying power, of their determination under adversity. It's grit, but with hope. And it doesn't just apply to a single circumstance. You see, you develop perseverance and it ends up becoming the mark of who you are in the world. Perseverance, not just in this circumstance, but it becomes perseverance in the whole of life. So this isn't just about you kind of mustering up this impressive force of will. When uh, Cheryl and I were first married, we were married young, and uh, my wife is from Guam out in the South Pacific, and so when we would go to home to visit her family, we would uh, have to fly through like Japan or often Hawaii. And when we were flying to Hawaii uh, for years, it was, it was really fun. It was really cute. Almost every time we got on the plane, somebody would say to us, oh, are you guys newlyweds? You know, going to celebrate your, uh, your honeymoon in Hawaii. And of course, we were like, oh, no, you know, first year. We're like, no, we've been married a year, two years. We've been married five years. You know, we kept doing this every year. And then one year they stopped asking us if we were newlyweds. It was a depressing year. Um, but uh, anyway, we were a young married couple, and uh, when we got married, of course, we thought that we were going to be married for life. We were, in fact, we, we would have said we we're convinced. We knew that we were going to be married for life. I mean, but what did we really know? <laughs> I mean, we were kids. We, we couldn't have a champagne toast 
at our wedding because we were 20. We were, we were underage. And so like we couldn't even, like, what did we really know? We were kids. So here we are. They're letting us get married. We can't eat. We're not responsible enough for a champagne toast. And it's like, like what did we really know? But how things have changed. Because now we've, lo- we've logged some serious marriage mileage. We're coming up on our 29th wedding anniversary in uh, August. And over the years, the marriage has been tested. And through that testing, we have, we, have, we have seen perseverance in the relationship grow. We have seen a solidity to it. Yesterday, we were walking in a park. We were holding hands. We were just kind of talking about some marriage things and life and things like that. And I was just reminded of, of the solidity of the relationship now that it had been tested and purified. And the same thing, but much more profound, goes on in the soul. He, he says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That's God's plan, that perseverance, when finished, will make you mature. You see, this is all about soul care. James wants us to be mature in Christ, and he knows that God will use these trials to do that work if we let him. Because therein lies the answer to the question of joy, right? So let's get back to that most bewildering part. Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. To have pure joy. Notice it's not just joy. It's pure joy. When he speaks of us considering it, it's a word that talks about having a settled conviction. You see, this isn't simply having joy because you're suffering. That, that wouldn't make any sense. It would be, that, w- that would be a, a twisted way of, of even understanding what's going on in the suffering. You see, rather, we have to see these as opportunities to grow in the maturity that will bring us to a completeness of faith, which means a more full and a more complete experience of God's love and the experience of the grace of Jesus and the growth that will make us way more productive for the work of the kingdom here in this world as we await our joy in heaven. See, this is the promise of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's the promise to deepen and to expand our souls so that we can draw ever closer to him and to bask in his presence more fully and more completely. And all of this can be ours through these trials. So we can consider them pure joy. I mean, this is what they tell. This is, this is how our Savior went forward to his glory. The writer of Hebrews, in in a remarkably similar way of phrasing, he says, let us run with perseverance. There's this same idea, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's saying, let Jesus be your example, because he was the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. He's making it complete. He's making it mature for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we follow a Savior. A Savior that in his humanity came from an oppressed people. Where government authorities would scourge him and his people. And they would kill 
though they were innocent. And with tears and with fears, our Savior, he faced the ultimate crisis. But because of the promise, Jesus, with settled confidence, he marched through that crisis, holding on to the joy awaiting him. That's his posture toward God. Great trust, great power is seen in that. See, this, these, are, these are crazy days. We are disrupted and we're under pressure. We have anxiety increasing with every news article we read. And there's worries and it results in lusts and, and greed and self-centeredness and despondency and despair and anger. And all of these things, they start to percolate in us. And as they start to come up to the surface, see all of these crises, they reveal what's in our hearts. Are we going to waste these crises? Because God doesn't want to waste a single one. This is a great opportunity. You know, at times like this, you can get a master class in soul development at times like this. If we allow God to do his work and if we participate with the spirit, we could see years of spiritual growth and formation starting to develop here in these, in the pressure cooker of these weeks and days and hours. I mean, let's consider the protests to bring this home to us. Listen, if, if you're angry at the protesters, if you're angry at the looters, use it as an opportunity. Examine your heart. Use it to get closer to God's heart in the midst of all this pain. What can he do in this midst? What, what forward motion can your soul make at times like this? You know, God, he actually loves the cops. And what bothers us is that he loves the, the good cops who are heartbroken about this. And of course, he loves the dirty ones as well. These are the hard truths that we have to wrestle with in our soul. He loves the protesters, the peaceful and the violent. How many of the great saints of old were described in these same violent ways. God loves them. His heart breaks for them all. Does yours? Does mine? His, his son died for all of this sin. Can we at least die to our own ignorance and self-centeredness? Listen, for those of you who are joining the protests. Be safe. Be safe as you seek a much needed infusion of justice in our society. But how will you protest? With vicious words and indiscriminate violence? With ignorance of the fears and the heartache and the humanity of your opponents? Or with the power and grace of God's love overflowing from your hearts. Listen, soul care at times like this is essential. 
When you're facing trials of many kinds, let's remember this great truth. This is for your good. Can we put that up there? This is for my good. That's key. Can we remember this great truth? This is for my good. Because God has given you a gift. It is a fierce gift, but it is a gift. And because we are the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, it is also for their good. Will we be that salt and that light at times like this? So what will become of your soul during these chaotic times? Don't waste a crisis. Would you pray with me? Father, what we are asking for here this morning is for the deep and unrelenting transformation of our souls. That's what we want. Lord, we know it is difficult. We know it is often painful for us to go through. And yet we know that ultimate change in a society, in a nation, in a world is going to happen when individuals are transformed by the power of your great love. And we know, Lord, that no significant growth is going to take place unless we are tested and we develop the perseverance that your scriptures promise us. Lord, we want very much to surrender, even in our rebellious moments. Lord, we want to surrender these things to you. We want you to let joy stand out ahead of us as a promise that we cling to now so that we might press through these challenges, being more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Praying. Amen.